You're listening to Outlaws and Gunslingers, the only podcast covering all of America's infamous criminals, from the Wild West to the Mafia, all the way up to the ruthless street gangs of today. Brought to you exclusively by the Creative Control Network. Here are your hosts, the Mouthy Michiganders, Bang and Dang. We're going to cover the, I know we said we did a, we would do a gang, but I found this guy who, technically we're doing Outlaws and Gunslingers, it's called Outlaws and Gunslingers, so outlaws of any kind go, right? I mean, it's outlaw, but. Right? Outlaw. No um, specific term for an outlaw. Well, there is an exact term for an outlaw, but <laughs> <laughs> from the dictionary. Well, there is no. From the dictionary, as fourth outlaw, person who has broken the law, especially one who remains at large or is a fugitive, and uh, that. Um, definition couldn't be more true about the guy that we're covering right now oh. because it's all about the mad bomber, a.k.a. George Metesky, who we would later be found out to be the very definition of outlaw because he terrorized the New York City for 16 years in the 40s and 50s with explosives that he planted in theaters, terminals, libraries, and offices. Mm. So this guy is uh, just... He likes blowing stuff up. They, they, call him the, they did call him the mad bomber. For a reason. For a reason. Well, not really much is known about the uh, guy's early life, nor should it be, because, right. I mean, you know, can't glorify his life. Or can you? Uh-huh. But following World War One, he joined the uh, <laughs> he joined the U.S. Marines, serving as a specialist electrician in the United States Consulate in Shanghai. Okay. Uh, returning home, he went to work as a mechanic for a subsidiary of the Consolidated Edison Utility Company and lived mm-hmm. in Waterbury, Connecticut. That's where Happy Gilmore won his first tournament. Waterbury? Yeah. Nice. Waterbury Open. I don't think he won it, but he uh, did the hole-in-one or something there. He qualified for PGA there. That's okay. right. Okay. Uh, with his two unmarried sisters. Oh, geez. In 1931, Metesky was working as a generator wiper at the company's Hellgate generating plant when a boiler backfire produced a blast of hot gases. Ooh. The blast knocked Metesky down, and uh, and the fumes filled his lungs, choking him. Oh, shit. Uh-oh. Wow. It's dangerous. Yeah, that were dangerous jobs back yeah. in those days. Mm-hmm. Boilers and stuff. Yeah, right. man, you want to do that. Right. The accident left him disabled, and after collecting 26 weeks of sick pay, he lost his very own job. Oh, geez, Edison Con. According to claims disputed by Consolidated Edison, the accident led to pneumonia that in turn developed into tuberculosis. Oh, you can't have somebody with TB working. Right. A claim for a worker's compensation was denied. Because he waited too long to file it. Well, I mean, it's can't blame nobody else if you've waited too long to file it. It's your own fault. Man, you waited 26 weeks. Well, he collected, he he had collected yeah. 26 weeks of sick pay, though. Yeah, why didn't he get workman's comp? And then he lost his job. He should have got workman's comp from... But he got sick pay to see if he was going to recover, and then it was probably determined this guy ain't coming back. Plus, he tried... They're disputing the pneumonia turned into tuberculosis, so they're like, I don't believe you. Yeah, but why would he... Why wouldn't he just get workers' comp in the beginning and not use his 26 weeks of sick pay? That's a lot of weeks of sick pay. He that's probably a- got paid more in the 26 weeks of sick pay than he would for workers' that's, comp. That's six months. You're allowed six months. Sick. I'm sure they don't give the same exact right for- uh, wages. Right. Right. Anyway, way too long. He couldn't get workers' comp. We're like, no, sorry, bud. Right. Three appeals of the denial were also rejected, and uh, the last one was in 1936. Hmm. He developed a hatred for the company's attorneys and for the three co-workers whose testimony in his conversation case he believed was perjured in favor of the company. Obviously it was. Oh, here's his uh, vendetta here, huh? Mm. Hatred for the company's attorneys and the three people that, right. they, they, they lied. They did. Mm. They but, keep their jobs. I mean, why not? 
Well, his first two bombs drew little attention, but the string of random bombings that began in 1951 frayed the city's nerves and taxed the resources of the NYPD. Metesky often placed warning calls to the buildings where he had planted bombs, but would not specify the bomb's exact location. Hmm. So he's not looking to kill nobody, per right. se. He's looking to damage property. Right. He wrote to newspapers warning that he planned to plant more. Some bombs came with notes, but the notes never revealed a motive or a reason for choosing that particular lo- location. So, yeah, if he's calling ahead, they're evacuating the building, and he just wants to blow up the building, pretty much. And they better evacuate the building. I would assume so, right? Jeez. Especially the, the call ahead, too. Wow. What's he thinking? It took him 15 years after his uh, uh, trying to get workman's comp and he got fired and all that. It took him 15 years. Well, I mean, he probably had dedicated his life to building bombs. Had to learn how. Had to get it right. Right. Okay. Uh, Matesky's bombs were gunpowder-filled pipe bombs. Of course. Ranging in size from 4 to 10 inches and from um, 0.5 to 2 inches in diameter. So they're kind of like a... Very small, man. It's like a pipe. Like a spray can. Yeah. Well, not even, no. Like a spray can. 2 inches in diameter is only this. Yeah, 2 inches. It's like a spray can. Yeah, I guess it would be smaller than a spray can. That would be like a regular pipe. Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. So it's not very... Oh, it's just a little pipe, man. Yeah, they're called pipe bombs. Mm-hmm. They're about two inches in diameter, but some skinnier. Uh, most used timers constructed from flashlight batteries and cheap pocket watches. Okay. Investigators at bomb sites learned to look for a wool sock. A wool. wool. Not a wool. <laughs> wool. <laughs> a wool sock. You pulled the wool over my eyes. All right. Investigators at bomb sites learned to look for a wool sock. Metesky used these to transport the bombs and sometimes to hang them from a rail or projection. Hmm. Between 1940 and 1956, Matuski planted at least 33 bombs, of which 22 exploded, injuring 15. So no murders. No murders. No, uh, no murders here. Well, his first bomb was a was crude, a short length of brass pipe filled with gunpowder, with an ignition mechanism made of sugar and flashlight batteries. Hmm. Does it like set off a reaction or something? Oh, it's weird. Enclosed in a wooden toolbox and left on a consolidated Edison power plant windowsill, it was found before it could go off. It was wrapped in a note written in a distinctive in distinctive black letters and signed FP stating, Con Edison Crooks, this is for you. Didn't they just say he didn't have a motive? Right. Clearly the motive is uh, going after Con Edison, right? At first. Maybe he just right. liked it after that. And then he's just like, I'm going to do more. Some investigators wonder if the bomb was an uh, intentional dud. Hmm. Since if it had exploded, the note would have been a I was just thinking about that. Like, why would he leave right. a note wrapped around it? Right. In September 1941... A bomb with a similar ignition mechanism was found lying in the street about five blocks away from the consolidated Edison headquarters at 4 Irving Place. This one had no note, and it was also a dud. Police theorized that the bomber might have spotted a police officer and dropped the bomb without setting its fuse. Hmm. Shortly after, the United States entered World War II in December of 1941. The police received a letter in block capital letters. I will make no more bomb units. (laughs) (laughs) I will make no more bomb units for the duration of the war. My patriotic feelings have made me decide this. Later, I will bring the Con Edison to justice. They will pay for their dastardly deeds. F dot P dot. Well, look at him. He didn't want to do it during the war. Good for him. Well, true to his word, Metesky planted no bombs between 1941 and 51. Okay. Wow. So he waited six years after the war. Right. Choosing instead to send crank letters and postcards to police stations, newspapers, private citizens, and Con Edison. Investigators studying the penciled block lettered messages noted that the letters G and Y had an odd shape, 
possibly indicating a European education. Oh. Uh, the long hiatus since the last bomb and the improved construction techniques of the first new bomb led investigators to believe that the bomber had served in the military. Okay, he served in World War One. then? Did he? Remember what he said? Yeah, he was a mechanic. Yeah. Oh, well, he was yeah, World War I. served as a specialist electrician, so he knew his way around wiring and stuff, so yeah. After World War I. <clears throat> right, but he still knew his way around wiring. Right. So, right. Okay, so look at these guys onto him. Kind of got a little profile of him so far. I'm trying to see what was going on. All right, right, mm-hmm. right, right. For mm-hmm. his new wave of bombings, Matuski mainly chose public buildings as targets, bombing several of them multiple times. Jeez. Bombs were left in the phone booths, doors, lockers, and restrooms in public buildings, including Grand Central Terminal, five times. Of course. Pennsylvania Station, five times. Of course. Radio City Music Hall, three times. Wow. The New York Public Library, twice. Okay. The Port Authority, uh, the Port Authority Bus Terminal, twice. And the RCA Building, once. As well as the New York City Subway, once. Matoski also bombed movie theaters. Where he cut into seat upholstery and slipped his explosive oh, devices inside. That's not good. He right. blew up somebody sitting on it. Right. Um, I'm surprised he didn't target the subway more times than just once. Right. Especially in New York. Right. There's a lot of freaking people down there. Well, I guess his intention was right. never to hurt people, though, right. I guess, right? Right. 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 right? On March 29th, the first Metesky bomb of the new wave and also the first Metesky bomb to explode oh. startled commuters at Grand Central Terminal but injured nobody. It had been dropped into a sand urn near the Grand Central Oyster Bar and Restaurant on the terminal's lower level. In April, Metesky's next bomb exploded without injury in a telephone booth in the New York Public Library. In August, a phone booth bomb exploded without injury at Grand Central. Uh, this guy's just... Just blowing stuff up. Right. Mm. Police dismissed the event as the work of boys or pranksters. Oh, idiot. It's like, these guys are just messing around. New York Times reported the event... Boys the... or pranksters? Right. Like, stuff that could legitimately kill people? All right. Uh, the New York Times reported the event in the following day's issue, though only with a three-paragraph brief at the bottom of the page 24. Matuski next planned a bomb, planted a bomb that exploded without injury in a phone booth at the Consolidated Edison Headquarters building at Fort... Consolidated. Right. <laughs> so he keeps on going right back to his building. Well, obviously, that's who his vendetta is against. All right. He also mailed one bomb, which did not explode, to Consolidated Edison from White Plains, New York. Huh. 22nd of October. The New York Herald Tribune received a letter in pencil block letters stating, Bombs will continue until the Consolidated Edison Company is brought to justice for the dastardly... still using the dastardly uh, right. word there. Justice for the dastardly acts against me. I have exhausted all other means. I intend with bombs to cause others to cry out for justice. So, so he's, he's trying to be a uh, hero of the unheard or something? Right. Like CM Punk? Or something, right. He wants bombs. <laughs> Police, uh, yeah, they dismissed the event. The letter directed police to Paramount Theater in Times Square, where a bomb was discovered and disabled, and to a telephone booth at Pennsylvania Station, where nothing was found. Mm. Um, on November 28th, a coin operator locker at the IRT 14th Street subway station was bombed without injury. Uh-oh. Near the end of the year, the Herald Tribune received another letter warning. Have you noticed the bombs in your city? If you are worried, I am sorry. And also, if any was injured. Oh, so he's looking. He's... All right. Clearly doesn't want to hurt people. Right, but it cannot be helped. But it, not, it cannot be helped, for justice will be served. I am not well, and for this I will make the Con Edison sorry. Yes, they will regret their dastardly deeds. I will bring them, uh, he should be the dastardly uh, bomber. Right. I will bring them before the bar of justice. Public opinion will condemn them. Beware. For beware, I will place more units under the theater seats in near future. F.P. So he that, signs them as F.P. Tell them, they're in theater seats. If you idiots keep on going, 
It's your own fault. I wonder what FP stands for. Right. March 19th, a bomb exploded in a phone booth at the Port Authority bus terminal without causing injury. In June and again in December, bombs exploded in the seats at the Lexington Avenue's Lowe's Theater. I mean, he told him. The December bombing injured one person this time, and it was the first Metesky bomb to cause injury. Oh, After what, six or seven right. now? Police had asked the new- newspapers not to print any of the bombers' letters and played down earlier bombings. But by now, the public was well aware of the mad bomber, and they knew that he was on the loose. Mm. Bombs exploded in the seats at the Radio City Music Hall and the Capitol Theater with no injuries. A bomb again exploded near the Oyster Bar in the Grand Central Terminal, this time in a coin-operated rental locker, okay. again with no injuries. Right. Police describe this bomb as the homemade product of a publicity-seeking jerk. Quote, like they don't know by now, there's a serial bomber. Right, obviously. An unexploded bomb was found in a rental locker at Penn Station. A bomb wedged behind a sink in a Grand Central Terminal men's room exploded in March, slightly injuring three men. Slightly. Slightly. Uh, a bomb planted in a phone booth at the Port Authority bus terminal exploded with no injuries. And another bomb was discovered in a phone booth that was moved from Penn Station for repair. Oh, nice. Hmm. Nice. They're about to repair that phone booth. They're like, there's a bomb in here. <laughs> right. <laughs> really, would have had to repair this I was phone say, booth. We, that would have been a real repair job there. <laughs> right. <laughs> At capacity, Radio City Music Hall audience of 6,200 watched Bing Crosby's White Christmas on the 7th of November. A bomb stuffed into the bottom cushion of a seat in the 15th row exploded, injuring four. Jesus, a capacity of 6,200 people. It was stuffed in the seat on the the 15th 15th row. row And only injured four. Nobody was sitting in it? Wow. The explosion was muffled by the heavy upholstery, and only those nearby heard it. Oh, shit. So they're kind of, these pipe bombs are probably right. They're like a firecracker almost. Pretty much. That's got to be if right. they're if they're only injuring people that are right near it. Right, and nobody heard it. Right. While the film continued, the injured were escorted to the facility's first aid room, and about fifty people in the immediate area were moved back to moved to the back of the theater. <laughs> All right, just move back. <laughs> what? They allowed the movie to keep on going after a bomb just went off. Oh, my God. After the film and following stage show concluded. Damn, they had a following stage show, too? stage show after the movie. Oh, my goodness. An hour and a half lasted after the bomb. Hour and a half later, the police roped off 150 (laughs) seats in the area of the explosion. The search for evidence. Oh, my gosh. They waited an hour and a half after the bomb exploded to search for evidence. (laughs) Holy hell. Talk about incompetent NYPD. You you cannot close a uh, Bing Crosby show down. Mm -mm. Or the stage show. It was probably nothing. Oh Holy crap. A bomb exploded without injuries on the platform of the IRT Sutter Avenue subway in uh, Brooklyn. A bomb hung beneath a phone booth shelf exploded on the main floor of Macy's department store with no injuries. Two bombs exploded without injuries at Penn Station, one in a rental locker and one in a phone booth. And a bomb was found at Radio City Music Hall after a warning call. <laughs> this dude's just placed them everywhere. <laughs> Oh my goodness, this guy has got like little tiny bombers. I know, dude. M80s going off everywhere. It said they averaged in uh, width of uh, uh, half an inch to an inch. So this dude's literally got bombs that are like this, this wide. All right, the big as that pencil. Big as the pencil. That's the ones that are going, oh, come on. Right, they're going off. What are you playing? Right, that's all it's doing. Flashbangs. There's the ones that don't even, those are literally the size of um, black cats or uh, right. firecrackers. That's basically what they firecrackers. are. That's it. What the hell is this guy doing? <laughs> well, they call them bombs. Well, I guess a bomb. I don't know. Right. This dude's just sticking M80s and things. Right. I mean, get the hell out of here. Probably not even as powerful. 
At the Roxy Theater, a bomb dropped out of a slash seat onto an upholster's workbench without exploding. Oh, damn. So this dude took out the seat right. and moved it, did and all these things before it even, didn't even explode at he's all. He's, like, working on it and stuff, right? And then it just falls out. Mm. Didn't explode. A seat bomb exploded at the Paramount Theater. One patron was struck on the shoe <laughs> by, by bomb fragments but disclaimed injury. Oh, no. Oh. Investigators discovered a small pen knife pushed into the seat, one of several found at theater seat bombings. Hmm. Hmm, what's a pen knife? Uh, they theorized that the bomber left his knives behind in case he was stopped and questioned. Hmm. Okay. In December, a bomb exploded without injuries in a Grand Central men's uh, bathroom. Well, a 74-year-old men's room attendant at Penn Station was seriously, in- seriously injured oh, no. when a bomb in a toilet bowl exploded. Uh, a young man had reported an obstruction, and the attendant tried to clear it using a plunger. Oh, no. Among yeah. the porcelain fragments, investigators found a watch frame and a wool, <laughs> a wool sock. Watch frame. Got to have a watch frame. Uh-huh. Ain't that crazy. Uh-oh. Now they're finding, actually, uh, more evidence now, huh? Right. It's the first time they found the sock and a watch. Right. A guard at the RCA building in Rockefeller Center discovered a piece of pipe about five inches long in a telephone booth. A second guard thought it might be useful in a plumbing project. Oh, jeez. Took it home on the bus in New Jersey where it exploded in his kitchen on his kitchen table. No one was injured. Oh, jeez. So these... <sighs> He's like, oh, look at this. I can use this. For- I got a piping issue at my house. <laughs> these idiots don't know by now. There's hundred. What? It was 15 bombs by now? Have gone off and they're like, hey, let's just take this random pipe sitting in the phone booth. And how would that be useful in a plumbing project anyway? Well, maybe you need a pipe that was five inches long to replace a piece of pipe. Clearly it wasn't hollow. I don't know, man. (laughs) This guy, holy crap, these guys are dumb. Um, How many phone books, or phone books, how many phone booths have already been uh, bombed? And this guy's like, hey, I'll just find this random piece of pipe in a phone booth. booth It's been blown up around the the northeast. Exploded on a kitchen table earlier the next morning. No one was injured. No. A December 2nd bombing at the Paramount Theater in Brooklyn left six of the theater's 1,500 occupants Ooh. injured, one seriously, and drew tremendous new- news coverage and editorial attention just now. The next day, Police Commissioner Stephen P. Kennedy ordered what he called the greatest manhunt man in the history of the police department. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about that. Right. New York Public Library, December 1924. A New York Public Library clerk using a phone booth dropped a coin. Uh-oh. Looking up after he retrieved his coin, he saw a maroon-colored sock held to the underside of the shelf by a magnet. And he's like, what the hell is this? The sock contained an iron pipe with a threaded cap on each end. After consulting with other employees, he threw the device out a window into Bryant Park. Like, why would you do that? And just throw it out and let somebody else pick it up. Not only that, right. How about just get out of the damn library? Right. Bringing the bomb squad and more than 60 NYPD officers and detectives to the scene. So he threw it out there and then called the cops. Right. In a letter to the New York Journal-American the next month, Matoski said that the public library bomb, as well as one discovered later the same week inside a seat at the Times Square Paramount, had been planted months before. Oh, he just forgot them. They were duds or he didn't plan them to go off or they didn't go off. Right, right? they didn't go off. (laughs) There were three other bombs that... uh, Police did not find in several police searches that were discovered at, discovered at the Lexington Avenue Lowe's Theater by an upholstery repair in a recently vandalized seat. Oh. It was the last of the three bombs Montesky said he had planted there. Oh. Uh, the first two exploded, one in June 1952 and the other in December 1952, with the December explosion resulting in one injury. Right. As of the Lowe's discovery, only two of the dozens of bombs that Montesky claimed to have planted remain unaccounted for. So oh. there's two still out there somewhere oh. in uh, New York. Really? That could be still there. 
Wow. He said one is a Con Edison site on the East River, the other at the Embassy Theater at 7th and 47th Street. Uh-oh. Well, well, throughout the investigation, the prevailing theory was that the bomber was a former Con Edison employee with a no grudge against shit. the company. They no shit. No, right. Con Edison employment records were reviewed, but there were hundreds of other leads, tips, and crank letters to be followed up on. What's a uh, fuck a crank letter? <laughs> like a, obviously, like a crank phone call. <laughs> a crank. <laughs> crank call. You, never see, you don't know what a crank call is? A crank call? Crank call. You know what a crank call is? Oh, it's a crank call. Same thing. You never heard of Crank Anchors? The little TV show oh, with right, the puppets and right, stuff? Yeah. Right. Well, detectives ranged far and wide, checking lawsuit records, mental hospital admissions, vocational schools where bomb parts might be made. Uh, citizens turned in neighbors who behaved oddly. Oh, jeez. Oh, man. Um, and, Whoa, <laughs> say something. See something. Say something. Say something. It could be and anybody. workers who seemed to know too much about bombs. Oh, jeez. Oh, a new group, the Bomb Investigation Unit, was formed to work on nothing but bomber leads. Mm. Bomber leads. Right. <laughs> nice. We got a bomber lead. All right. April 1956. The department issued a multi-state alert for a person described as a skilled mechanic with access to a drill press or lathe, uh, which is, has the ability to thread pipe, okay. who posted mail from White Plains, was over 40, and had a deep-seated hatred of the Consolidated Edison Company. He's like, that's a, that's a lot of people. Right. How, how many people work at? All right. A warning circular picturing a uh, a homemade pipe bomb similar to the bombers was distributed. Okay. Police distributed samples of the bombers' distinctive printing and asked anyone who might recognize it if they can notify. Just, hey, just notify me if you recognize this, please. Please. We are looking desperately for this mad bomber. He's a mad bomber. Well, he killed anyway. No. Seriously injured, one or two. A couple of them. A review of the driver's license applications in White Plains, the city favored uh, by the bomber for posting his mail, found similarities in 500 of them. Oh, jeez. Right. The names were forwarded to the NYPD for investigation. So found, uh, here's 500 people. Found similarities in 500 of them that was similar to the bomber's printing. Right. To his letters. Right. Wow. And they're like, what's the population? 550. There's <laughs> <laughs> pretty much everybody. Everybody in this town is a suspect. They're all walking down the street looking at each other. <laughs> <laughs> People are strange <laughs> when you're a stranger. December 2nd, 1956, bombing of the Brooklyn Paramount drew tremendous news coverage tremendous. and editorial attention, which we said. We did. The following day, police commissioner met with commanders of every NYPD division and ordered what he called the greatest manhunt in the history of the police department. We know that. We, we, we know Calling that. the bomber's activities an outrage that cannot be tolerated. Uh-uh. He promised an immediate good promotion to whoever arrested the bomber and directed commanders to alert every member of the force to the absolute necessity of the capture. An immediate and good promotion. So what if it wasn't a policeman who did it? What kind of promotion are you going to give a baker? It's like a janitor. Right. <laughs> Okay. On December 27, 1956, the New York City Board of Estimate and the Patrolman's Benevolent Association posted $26,000 in rewards for the bomber's apprehension. Mm-hmm. They're getting serious about this guy now. All right. All right. Oh, well, you got to. You got to. There's a guy out there throwing, throwing uh, bombs and throwing black cats in <laughs> phone booths. <laughs> it's dangerous. Throwing black cats and uh, <laughs> pop cans. All right. Come on, man. Throughout the search, simulated bombs and false bomb reports wasted police's resources and frightened an already nervous public. Mm. Around 1951, Frederick Eberhardt, 56 years old and like Matowski, a former Con Edison employee with a grudge, sent a simulated pipe bomb filled with sugar to the company's personal director at Fort Irving Place. Okay. Eberhardt was charged with sending threatening material through the mail. 
<laughs> at his raiment. So right. oh, wait, threatening material through the mails. You can't. Um, you can't even send a letter saying I hate you or something, or I'm gonna beat you up. No, maybe you can. Mm. They'll be threatening documents, threatening material, or maybe uh, yeah, I don't know. At his arraignment in November, an assistant district attorney told the judge, this defendant is a particular source of annoyance to the New York City police. We are firmly convinced that he is not of sound mind. He has been sending simulated bombs around the city for the past few months. Hundreds of police have been called out at all hours of the day and night to investigate because of his actions. <laughs> Everhart was sent to Bellevue Hospital for psychiatric examination. Several months later, the case was dismissed after Eberhardt's lawyer argued successfully, successfully that the package contained no written threats, right. as the law required. See, so I told you. All right. So you can't, you can't send a letter in the mail saying I'm going to punch your face <clears throat> to somebody. I guess you can't. Oh wow! <laughs> I guess you can't. In October 1951, the main waiting room at the Grand Central Terminal was emptied, and 3,000 lockers were searched after a telephone bomb warning. Oh. The search involved more than 35 NYPD personnel and took three hours because of. Because 1,500 of the lockers were in use and only one master key was available. Oh, no. As each locker was opened, the head of the bomb squad palpitated its contents, keeping a portable fluoroscope at the ready. 29th December, 1956. At the height of the false bomb reports from theaters, department stores, schools, and offices, a note left in a phone booth at, <clears throat> a note left in a phone booth at Grand Central Terminal reported that a bomb had been placed at the Empire State Building. Uh-oh. Oh, jeez. Requiring a search of all 102 floors. Oh, jeez. Wow. A 63-year-old railroad worker picked up at Grand Central as a suspect died of a heart attack while being questioned. Oh, jeez. Wow. At the the East 35th Street Station House. Later investigation eliminated him as a suspect. <laughs> so they brought on the heart attack. They murdered this guy. Right, pretty much, dude. <laughs> Is that like murder by interrogation? <laughs> I think so. It could be. Uh, fingerprint experts, handwriting experts, the bomb investigation unit, and other... NYPD groups work with dedication but made little progress. With traditional right. police methods seemingly useless against Metesky's erratic bombing campaign, police captain captain <laughs> police captain John Cronin approached his friend James A. Brussel, who was a criminologist, psychiatrist, psychiatrist, <laughs> psychiatrist, and assistant commissioner of the New York State Commission for Mental Hygiene. Captain Cronin asked Brussel to meet with Inspector Howard E. Finney, head of the NYPD's crime laboratory. In his office with Finney and two detectives, Russell examined Russell examined the crime scene photos and letters and discussed the bomber's metalworking and electrical skills. He's like, this guy's pretty good at working with metal, right. and he's got some fantastic electrical skills. <laughs> As he talked with the police, Russell developed that he called it a kind of portrait of the bomber, mm. what would now be called as an offender profile. So one of the first offender profile right. ever, right? Right. The bomber's belief that he had been wronged by Consolidated Edison and by others acting in concert with Consolidated Edison seemed to dominate his thoughts. He was just so worried about his former job and how they mm-hmm. screwed him over, leading Brussel to conclude that the bomber was suffering from paranoia, a condition he described as a chronic disorder of insidious development characterized by persistent, unaltered, system- systematized, logically constructed Delusions. Okay, so he's saying this guy's crazy. He's out of his freaking mind. Right. He's out of his freaking mind, guys. He don't know what he's doing. He could really hurt somebody. He knows what he's doing. He just don't care because right. he's out of his mind, dude. He's just he's crazy. Right. Based on the evidence and his own experience dealing with psychotic criminals, mm-hmm. Russell put forth a number of theories beyond the obvious grudge against Consolidated Edison. Wow. Male, as historically, historically most bombers were male, 
well-proportioned and of average build based on studies of hospitalized mental patients. 40 to 50 years old as paranoia develops slowly. Precise, neat, and tidy based on his letters and the workmanship of his bombs. An exemplary employee and uh, who was on time and well-behaved. Really? A Slav because bombs were favored in Middle Europe. A Catholic because most Slavs were Catholic. <laughs> Courteous but not friendly. Oh, Courteous but not friendly. Mm. He was a well-behaved and showed up on time for work. Mm-hmm. Probably did, too. Very good employee. Wow. He got injured one day. That's it. That's all it takes, right? Yeah. That's it. Wow. Send them to screw you over of your uh, pay. Right. The other theory is that this guy has a good education, but probably not college. He was foreign-born or living in a community of foreign-born. The formal tone and old-fashioned phrasing of letters sounded to Brussels as if they had been written or thought out in a foreign language and then translated into English. Based on a rounded letter W's of the handwriting, believed to represent breasts. What? And the slashing and stuffing of theater seats, Brussels thought something about sex was troubling the bomber. Possible in Odopius Complex. Loving his mother and hating his father and other authority figures. So this guy's like a, a sexual freak too now, he's thinking? Or he could be just a sexual freak? Yes, because his W's, maybe this, maybe Brussels looking at the right. W's like boobs. Like boobs. This guy, this and maybe this guy, weirdo already, maybe he's, right? maybe he's a, uh, uh, he loves his mother and hates right. his father. Right, he's got a, a deepious complex. Come on, Brussels. Wow. They also described him as a loner with no friends, little interest in women, possibly a virgin. Unmarried, perhaps living with an older female relative, which he did move with his sisters, remember? Uh, probably lives in Connecticut, as Connecticut has high concentrations of slobs, <laughs> which he Sticking did. with the slobs. Uh, and many of the bomber's letters were posted in Westchester County, midway between Connecticut and New York. Okay. Oh. Well, that's pretty accurate there, because he was from Waterbury. Right. Right. Oh. Mm. Brussel, right. <laughs> <laughs> Brussel additionally predicted to his visitors, visitors that when bombers were caught... When the bomber was caught, he would be wearing a double-breasted suit, buttoned. Mm. Although the police policy had been to keep the bomber investigation low-key, Brussels convinced him to heavily publicize the profile, predicting that any wrong assumption made in it would prod the bomber to respond. Right. right? Under the headline, 16-year search for madman, uh, the New York Times version of the profile summarized the major's major predictions. Wow. Single man, between 40 and 50 years old, introvert. Hmm. Unsocial, but not antisocial. <laughs> okay. Skilled mechanic. He's very cunning. He's very cunning. Neat with tools. Neat with tools. Uh, Egotistical of mechanical skill. Okay. Uh, Contemptuous of other people. Resentful of criticism of his work. He don't criticize his work, but probably conceals resentment. Right. He's not going to let you know. You didn't like this? And he walks away. He's like, "Mm." Mm. he just made a list. (laughs) (laughs) He's moral. How? How? Honest. Well, I guess so. He's honest. Not interested in women. We Mm. don't know that, though. High school graduate, we also don't know that. Expert in civil or military ordinance, we know he's okay. an electrician. He's very religious. Maybe. Might flare up violently at work when criticized. So who knows? Possible motive, discharge or a reprimand. Feel superior uh, uh, to... Uh, right. Discharge or reprimand, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. He feels superior to critics. Probably. Resentment keeps growing. Yes, obviously. Present or formal consolidated Edison worker. Uh, clearly. Probably case of progressive paranoia. Hmm. Right. So they're guessing. There's so right. much stuff there, they don't right. know. Mm, possible, probably, maybe, <laughs> could be. <laughs> Newspapers published the profile on December 25th, 1956, alongside the story of the so-called Christmas Eve bomb discovered in the public library. 
By the end of the month, bomb hoaxes and false confessions had risen to epidemic proportions. At the peak of the hysteria on December 28th, police received over 50 false bomb alarms, over 20 the next day. Mm. Oh, shit. <sighs> wow. So, again, all these false bomb alarms, they don't know. There's like, there's a bomb. I'm pretty sure there's a bomb over here. Everybody wants to be a copycat. Wow. Mm. The day after the profile was published, the New York Journal American published an open letter prepared in cooperation with the police, urging the bomber to give himself up. The newspaper promised a fair trial and offered to publish his grievances. Matoski wrote back the next day, signing his letter FP. He said that he would not be giving himself up and revealed a wish to bring the uh, the con Edison to justice. I was like, I got, I've been telling you guys this. These guys need to be brought to justice for what they did to me and others. Right. He listed all the locations where he had placed bombs last year or that year. He seems concerned that perhaps not all have been discovered. Uh-oh. Well, later on in his letter, he said, my days on earth are numbered. Most of my adult life has been spent in bed. My one consolation is that I can strike back. Even from my grave, for the dastardly, dastardly. acts. He's the dastardly bomber, man. Against me, dastardly bomber. He would never let this go. Uh, wow. He won't. After some editing by the police, the newspaper published Montesky's letter on January 10th, <laughs> along with another open letter asking him for more information about his grievances. Montesky's second lever, lever letter provided some details about the materials used in the bombs. He favored pistol powder, as shotgun powder has very little power. All right. Promised a bombing truce until at least March 1st and wrote, I was injured on job at Consolidated Edison Plant, and as a result, I am a judge, totally and permanently disabled. Well, mm. now he just gave himself up. Right. Uh, going on to say that he had to pay his own medical bills, that Con Edison had blocked his workers' compensation case. He also said, when a motorist injures a dog, he must report it. Not so with an injured workman. He rates less than a dog. I tried to get my story to the press. I tried hundreds of others. I typed tens of thousands of words, about 800,000. Oh. Nobody cared. I deter- I was determined to make these dastardly acts known. I have plenty of time to think. I decided on bombs. Oh. Uh-oh. Hey, I mean, I get it. Mm. This guy is just like, hey, man, you guys lost me in the, in the paperwork. Yep. Well, what the hell? After police editing, the newspaper published his letter on the 15th of January and asked the, and asked the bomber for further details and dates. These guys are, uh, I guess, that's the only way you can communicate with them through... Uh, Right. A newspaper. Right. Hey, we're going to try. All right. They asked the bomber for further details and dates about his compensation case so that a new and fair hearing could be held. Oh, they're just trying to get down to figure out who exactly who this Obviously. is. Matoski's third letter was received by the newspaper on a Saturday, January 19th. <laughs> the letter complained that he laid unnoticed for hours on cold concrete after his injury without any first aid being rendered. Then developed uh, pneumonia and later tuberculosis. The letter added details about his lost compensation case and the perjury of his co-workers. And gave the date of his injury. Oh, no. 5th of September, 1931. This dude's just giving himself up now. The letter suggested that he did not have a family and that would be branded by his giving himself up. Hmm. He might consider doing so to get his compensation case reopened. Okay. For what? Was he going to come? He has no family. Still, you're gonna go him. To, yeah, but he's gonna go to prison. Yeah, commissary. <laughs> <laughs> he thanked the Journal American for publicizing his case, and said the bombings will never be resumed. Oh, so oh, he's no, done. He's given uh, up. This letter was published Tuesday, the day after Metesky was arrested. He was arrested the day after it was published. Right. Or no, it was published Tuesday, the day after he was arrested. Right. So wow. 
Why would they post it after? Well, this is, I don't know. But uh, yeah, wow. he's already arrested. Of course, he gonna clearly be wanted to give himself up there, huh? Well, Con Edison clerk uh, Alice Kelly had been for days scouring companies' workers' compensation files for employees with a serious health problem. On Friday, January 18, 1957, while searching the final batch of troublesome workers' compensation case files, those were those where threats were made or implied. She found a file marked in red with the words "injustice" and "permanent disability," oh. or as it had been printed in the journal American. Mm. The file indicated that one that one George Matesky, an employee from 29 to 31, had been injured in a plant accident on September 5, 1931. Several letters from Metesky in the file used word and similar to the letters in the journal American, including the phrase no. dastardly deeds. Oh, no. Da- dastardly. He's the dastardly bomber, man. Dastardly deeds bomber. Dastardly deeds. <laughs> <laughs> the police were notified shortly before 5 o'clock that evening. They initially th- treated the notification as just one of a number of leads they were working right, on, but right. asked Waterbury police to do a discreet check on George and the house on 17th 4th Street. Wow. So they're like, well, you know what? Let's just check it out. Right. Well, they knew what they were doing. They just didn't want to give anybody right um, notice that they were doing it. Right. That's very true. After Matoski's arrest, early police statements credited the file to an NYPD detective. Oh, liars. Later, a report developed in a reward investigation conceded that Ellis Kelly had found the file mm. and explained the misplaced credit as due to a misunderstanding of the file being picked up by the detective. As oh. meaning that the file was picked out. Oh, whatever. Right. They were trying to get. They were trying to get the end. The, the, the corrupt bastards. They yeah. were trying to credit the NYPD as the ones that were finding and found them. When in fact it was the Con Edison employee that did it. They right. just didn't want to give her no recognition. Right. I mean, come on, wow. guys. Although the NYPD did officially credit Kelly with turning up the clue that led to Metesky's arrest, she declined to claim the twenty-six thousand dollars in reward. Why not? Saying she had merely been doing her job. Right. I, mean, I, I guess. get paid a dollar thirty-five for this guy, so right. I'm good. <laughs> Consolidated Edison's board of directors also declined to file for the reward, so none of them wanted it, prompting a group of shareholders to file as representatives of Kelly and the company. Sure, she got a nice little uh, Christmas bonus that year or something, right? Well, of course, it makes himself look better against his case. Right. Like, what do you mean? Right. We're so good, we don't even want this we reward. Don't want this bonus money. Right. right. Yeah. Look out for our employees, mm-hmm. or they should have, they should have uh, paid her twenty six thousand dollars, right, out of their own money, right. Police investigators who later reviewed the path that led them to Metesky said that Con Edison had impeded the investigation for almost two years by repeatedly telling them that the records of employees whose services were terminated prior to nineteen forty, the group that Metesky was in, had been destroyed. Wait, whoa. 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 Wait a minute. So now, so now we got Con Ed lying to the cops. Wait a minute here. Saying they were destroyed when they weren't. Huh. The investigator said that they only they had learned of the records assistance only on January 14th through a confidential tip that even in the face of police demands and formal requests of Con Edison stalled, Whoa. declaring that papers were legal documents and that the company's legal department would have to be consulted before granting access. What? Oh, jeez. A statement by the president of Consolidated Edison said this was due to a misunderstanding. No. Oh! They didn't want... Con Edison didn't want them right. to know about all the outstanding right. uh, claims and shit they right. had against them. What's so misunderstanding about what... Oh, jeez. Oh, Con Edison. He had a chance to be the good guys in this case. You know they weren't already from the get-go. Accompanied by Waterbury's police, four NYPD detectives arrives at Matoski's home with a search warrant shortly after, shortly before midnight on Monday, January 21st, 1957. 
They asked him for a handwriting sample. Like, hey, sir, can you uh, just make a letter G? Right. He made the G. He looked up and said, I know why you fellows are here. You think I'm the mad bomber. Detect- Detective asked what FP stood for, and he responded, FP stands for fair play. Fair play. Well, I guess it's fair play planting bombs if they're going to screw me out of uh, my worker's cop, huh? That's what he's thinking in his head. Well, he led them to the garage workshop where they found his lathe. Oh, he did have a lathe. Good for him. Back in the... That's, that's good, good. So he just basically just gave up. Well, yeah, got me. well, when he told him the date of the case and all that shit, he pretty right. much gave up then. Right. Well, back in the house, they found pipes and connectors suitable for bombs hidden in the pantry, as well as three cheap pocket watches, flashlight batteries, brass terminal knobs, and unmatched wool socks of the type used to transport the bombs. Really? Matesky had answered the door in pajamas after he was ordered to get dressed for the trip to Waterbury Police Headquarters. He reappeared wearing a double-breasted suit, which was buttoned. Nice. Oh, that, oh. that profiler was fucking, uh, that profile was freaking dead on, wasn't he? Well, they said that he would be caught in a one, but he wasn't. Well, I mean, he was taken to the station, so in the press's eye, he was caught in That's it. true. Wow. Oh, ain't that nice? Look at that. I never thought of that, right? right? Matoxi told the arresting officers that he had been gassed in the Con Edison accident. Had contradicted, uh, oh, he had contracted tuberculosis as a result and started planting bombs because he got a bum deal. He's like, these guys did this to me. They didn't want to help me. Right. Did nothing. They shunned me. Got injured at their factory. Right. Hmm. Going over a police list of 32 bomb locations, but never using the word bomb, he remembered the exact date where each unit. Unit, he says. They're not bombs. They're units. Had been placed. And its size. I'm sure he had it all written down. Right. He then added to the police list. He then added to the police list the size, date, and location of 15 early bombs. He added to the list the size, date, right. and location of 15 early bombs that he had not known about. He's huh? like, you guys got this all wrong. There's 15 more. Here they are. If they haven't blown up yet, they'll be there. They're all at the Con Edison location. They were never reported, so they're probably still there. No. Wow. When his Con Edison bombs were not mentioned in the newspapers, he started planting bombs in public places uh, uh, to gain publicity for what he termed the injustices done to him. So his bombs weren't going off in Con Edison, so he's like, "All right." Well, they were, but they weren't even be reported, or not going off. Right. Oh. Yeah, and right. not reported, though. Right, not reported. He also confirmed the reason no bombs were planted during the United States involvement in World War II, which uh, he 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 abstained for patriotic reasons. I get it. Uh, in their search, police found parts for a bomb that would have been larger than any of the others. Matesi explained that it was intended for the New York Coliseum. Ooh, what was he going to do there? blow it up, obviously. Wow. wow. <laughs> right. Matesi admitted to placing 32 bombs. After a grand jury heard testimony from 35 witnesses, including police experts and those injured, he was indicted on 47 charges. Indicted! Indicted! Attempted murder, Uh, damaging a building by explosion, (laughs) maliciously endangering life, and a violation of New York State Sullivan Law by carrying concealed weapons, the bombs. They are concealed, and they're weapons. Seven counts of attempted murder were charged based on the seven persons injured in the preceding five years. The statute of limitations in the case. Oh, so right. anybody before the five, five years. years right. Yeah, right. He should statute. have waited five more years to turn himself in. Right, right? he'd have been fine. Well, Matoski. Uh, he wouldn't have been charged with uh, murder, attempted murder. He right. would have been charged with everything else, right. I think, right? Right. Matoski was brought to the courtroom to hear the charges from Manhattan's Bellevue Hospital, where he had been undergoing psychiatric examinations. Well, after hearing from psychiatric experts, Judge Samuel L. Lebowitz, 
declared the tub- tubercular Metesky a paranoid schizophrenic, Ooh. hopeless and incurable both mentally and physically, and found him legally insane and incompetent to stand trial. On April 18, 1957, Judge Lebowitz committed Metesky to the Matawan Hospital for the Criminally Insane at Beacon, New York. Expected to live only a few weeks due to his advanced tuberculosis, Metesky had had to be carried into the hospital. After a year and a half of treatment, his health had improved, and a newspaper article written 14 years later described the 68-year-old as uh, vigorous and healthy-looking. Wow. Look at him surviving, huh? Well, he probably had the best health care that, you know. Right. He's in he's in mental hospital. He's getting all the health care he needs. And tuberculosis is 1957. Come on. Come on. He was at Metatuan, the journal American hired a leading workers' compensation attorney, Bartholomew James O'Rourke, to appeal his disallowed claim. Wow, for the 1931 injury. Oh, is he going to get it? Wow, look at the Journal American wow. helping him over here. Is he huh? going to get it on the grounds they, that... The, he probably made the Journal American into a New York staple. Everybody knows who they are now, right. so I like, guess it's only fair they... Uh... The journal claimed that Metesky was mm. mentally incompetent at the time, and he did not know his rights. Mm. That He didn't know that he could. And then when they said, you know, you could just file for right. workman's comp, he was like, what? I didn't know that. Well, the appeal was denied. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, yeah, whatever. <laughs> they tried. All right. Matoski was unresponsive to psychiatric. Matoski was unresponsive to psychiatric therapy, but was a model inmate and caused no trouble. No trouble. <laughs> <laughs> he was visited. He was visited regularly by his sisters and occasionally by Brussels, oh, to whom he would point out that he had deliberately built his bombs not to kill anyone. That's what I said at the beginning of the episode. He's like, they weren't to kill anybody. There was a proof of message, right. guys. I just wanted to harm. Well, yeah, bring bring publicity to my uh, to my case, right? Right. What else can I do besides go speak to a newspaper or something? But, right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or anything else. You can stand in front of the store. The With store. a sign. With a sign. Right. I, mean, yeah, I was wrongfully Jeez, terminated. <laughs> <laughs> in 1973, United States Supreme Court ruled that a mentally ill defendant cannot be committed to a hospital operated by the New York State Department of Correctional Services unless a jury finds him dangerous. Oh, no. Uh, since Metesky had been committed to Madawan without a jury trial, he was transferred to the Creedmoor Psychiatric Center, a state hospital outside the correctional system. Okay, what so, happened? Uh, so it's not a correctional system uh, hospital. Oh, right. So it's just yeah. a regular one. Yeah, because he So he's not a criminal. Doctors determined that he was harmless, and because he had already served two-thirds of the 25 maximum sentence, 25-year maximum sentence, he would have received a trial. At trial, Metesky was released on December 13, 1973. Really? single condition was that he make regular visits to the Connecticut Department of Mental Hygiene Clinic near his home. And uh, interviewed by a reporter upon his release, he said that he had forsworn violence, but reaffirmed his anger and resentment towards Consolidated Edison. He also stated that before he began planting his bombs, I wrote 900 letters to the mayor, the police commissioner, to the newspapers, and I never even got a penny postcard back. Right. Then I went to the newspapers to try to buy the advertising space, but all of them turned me down. I was compelled to bring my story to the public. He tried. They're going to deny advertising space, though. All right. Mm, well, I don't know about that. Maybe. Dude, all you got to do is buy a space and just print whatever you want, unless they're uh, proofreading it or something, right? Right. I don't know. Uh, Metesky returned to his home in Waterbury, where he died 20 years later in 1994 at the crisp age of 90 years old. I mean, he lived to be 90 years old, a long life. And he uh, was out of prison for 20 years. Right. Another case of uh, 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 three different lives, dude. Right. Before and prison, prison, after prison. And this is a weird life for this guy. 
So the thing is, I don't know. I don't know who to blame here. Is Metesky the good guy? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, kind of is though, right? I mean, he's kind of ignorant for not knowing that you can fucking file for workman's oh. comp. How do you not know that? Well, it's clear he was uh, mentally insane, right? Already? Maybe. Before the accident? I mean, it, just don't, it just don't happen afterwards, does it? I guess. Oh, after what, the accident, caused maybe it, it was. Yeah, yeah, it caused it. So he just lost all, yeah, he didn't even think about it. Yeah, but then the plant bombs everywhere. I don't know, man. Well, I think he was a... He had Con Edison trying to cover up um, right. claims from his era for some reason. And lie to the cops. Like, why didn't Con Edison get charged with anything? Well, of course not. I mean, he definitely was—he was definitely was wronged at first. But then you can't resort to crimes to fix a wrong. Yeah. I mean, you can't do that. You, you just can't. What is the saying? Two wrongs don't make a right. Right. Two wrongs right. don't make a right. Mm-hmm. But even though you were right in the first place, you just went about it the wrong way. Right. You can't do that. Well, about I mean, the wrong way. 900 letters going uh, unreceived by the mayor, commissioner, police commissioner, newspapers, anything like that. I mean, I mean, what are you going to do, dude? What do you do after that? What do you do after that? So I don't know. And he didn't try to hurt anybody. So, you know, I'm going to have to go on the side of Metesky here. Zan, I think he had a point here. Yeah. I mean, the bombs were a little messed up. But, <laughs> I mean, geez, at least. Uh, I mean, he at least tried not to hurt anybody. Right. I think they were all low impact for a reason. Right. Barely muffling. You can mm. barely hear it. Right. Even though it's in a seat, who cares? Right, and if anybody was around, they got like a scratch on their arm or something. Well, you've seen the one, a piece of fragment hit his shoe. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, my towel hurts. Where you hit? Yeah, my shoe. Fragment on my shoe. It's brand new. Except for the poor guy trying to plunge the toilet. Now that was just a misunderstanding. That was just never what happened. Yeah, plunging toilets. Right. And then the boom, the mom goes a off. Boom, uh, and then a, piece, a boom. And a piece of porcelain. Well, the kid got him and said it was blocked. So the kid get uh, did the kid get questioned? Kid should have got charged. Something right? <laughs> I'm saying right. Should have got at least detained and uh, questioned right. about it. At right. least. Right. How'd you know it was blocked? And How'd you did know you it was know blocked? that it was going to go off? And, right. Right. Mm. <sighs> what a weird, weird, weird case here. It's very weird. Well, he still lived to the ripe old age of ninety years old. Tuberculosis. With TB. With TB. Damn. That, that, uh, that, that killed better men. Doc Holliday would be pissed. Oh, he would be. Look at this guy. He'd be like, this motherfucker lived to 90. Look at this guy living to 90 years old. What? Jeez. This guy's like 42. <laughs> <laughs> to be clear, it was like 100 years later. So right. Like, you know, mm-hmm. right People were dying to. People are dying for paper cuts. Right, exactly. That's going to do it for us in this episode of Outlaws and Gunslingers, all about the mad bomber, George Metesky. Sorry if it wasn't as good, guys, but... George Metesky, George Metesky, the mad bomber, and a mad bomber he was indeed. We'll be back next week. He was. We'll be back. We'll be back next week. We'll be back next week. Probably, yeah. We'll be was he was he a mad bomber though? I don't think he was mad. Uh, he, he was a mad bomber. He was technically mad. Yes. He was pissed, and he was a bomber. Right? Well, but was <laughs> so, he a bomber? Though? I mean, he's none of them. Are we know bombs. he's the dastardly bomber. First right, of all, he's that's a, what he is. He's the dastardly bomber, but none of them were really bombs. Right? They're like it's explosives. Yeah, M80s. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. what the fuck is an M80? Mm-hmm. I take off a finger if you have it in your hand. Right. I'm sure <clears> if those bombs went off in somebody's hands, it'll blow off their hand. Right. They don't count as seriously injured, right? <laughs> of course it would. I'm not seriously injured. It's pretty serious when you lose a hand. It's not serious at all. Hmm. Seriously injured is where your life was 
In Jeopardy. In Jeopardy. I don't know about that. But either or, we'll be back next week for another episode of Outlaws and Gunslingers. And I'm not going to say what it is because I don't know what it is. And even if I say what it is, it's probably not going to be that just like last week, wasn't it? We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. Also, if you're interested in uh, wrestling, <laughs> particularly the uh, particularly, particularly, yeah, there we go, um, the Monday Night War era, we do a show called The Monday Night Watch Long, where we went back How to uh, first week of Monday Nitro. We watched the main events of both Nitro Raw and any pay-per-views in between, and we ultimately decide who won the real you know war. What? Really good podcasters that do really good shows for wrestling are pissed off that they can't have our name. <laughs> like, look at these low-level piece of shit motherfuckers. And they got the best wrestling podcast name in the world. The Monday Night Watch Along. I mean, come on. Right. They can't use it. They can't use it. Guess why? I mean, they can. Oh, you can call me. It's not copyrighted. You can call me. It's copyrighted. It's not copyrighted. Shh. It's copyrighted. It's not copyrighted, and it's copyrighted. I mean, we could easily point out that we were the first to do it. Easily point out. Right. Well, there's, there's records. That's where, that's wherever you get your <laughs> podcast. The Monday Night uh, Watch Along, and like I said, we'll be back next week. We're the Mouth of Michiganders with Bang Dang.